There are many different ways that the world tries to criticize uh, the things that we hold dear, things that we cherish, uh, our faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ paramount among them. And, And one of the ways that skeptics or scoffers will try to make Christianity look ridiculous is they will say, well, it's just a crutch. Your, your faith is just a crutch. You're a weak person. You need something when life gets hard. You need some kind of a hope and a fantasy to, to confront your coming death. You need, you need something that helps you to make sense of the difficult seasons of life. I don't know what you do when somebody says that to you, that your faith is just a crutch. Perhaps we should say, my faith is much more than a crutch. It's a stretcher. It carries me through life much more than a crutch. But the point is, they're trying to say, I don't need what you have. You're weak. You're afraid. You need some some consolation in the middle of trials, tribulation, and suffering. You need some, some fantasy world to help you to deal with your own mortality. And... There's some truth in that, except it's not fantasy. It's the truth. We cling to a hope. We cling to a promise that God has issued forth through history and Scripture, which was proven at the cross, that we can go through life, through the, the difficult seasons of life. We can approach death. We can lay it all out there. And take great risks for the sake of the gospel because we have much more than a crutch. We have God Himself and the hope that comes through justification. Today we're going to do part two of what we started last week. We're looking at the treasures of justification. So the gospel is much more than justification, but that's kind of where we start. Justification. What is justification? Justification is God's declaration that we are righteous. Justification is God's declaration that we are without sin. And how do we receive this justification? By grace. It's a gift. How do we unwrap this gift of justification? By faith. So grace is the gift We access that grace by faith. That's the act of unwrapping the gift. And once you unwrap it and you see the grace that is ours, that grace is justification through our Lord Jesus Christ. Put simply, He earned His justification, but He takes the penalty of sin that we deserve. He receives the wrath of God and in in exchange for, for Him being punished for dying, for receiving the wrath that we deserve, He gives us His sinless status before God. And so what we're looking at last week and this week are, wow, that's amazing. That's a theological truth, but uh, what are the treasures? What are the practical treasures that are ours that can never be taken from us because of that? One of those treasures is hope. And hope, which we're going to look at today, and we, we begun to, began to talk about it last week, is not, I hope it's true. Like, I, I really cross my fingers that this is all real. 
No, the hope, biblically, that Paul is talking about and that is our treasure is an assurance that this is true. And what we're going to look at today is a subjective proof of that and an objective proof of that. How do we know that our hope is actually assurance? Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5? And please stand. Romans chapter 5. And today's preaching text, building on verses 1 to 5, are verses 6 through 11. This is part two of the treasures of justification. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. The Word of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The Word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray for us. I pray that these treasures that are ours because of justification through our Lord Jesus Christ would be understood and cherished, prized above all else in our lives. This will require an act of your Holy Spirit to reveal and to convict us and to show us the glory of justification that is ours by faith. And once we see what it is that you have given to us, help us to cling to it and to love it and to want it more than anything else. And then begin to radically change who we are from the inside out and help us to, to totally change the way we live our lives. So the people would say that we're different. And when they ask us, we'd tell them the reason for the hope that we have. That they might share in our justification. God, help me. Help me to preach. And help us to hear your word clearly, plainly, powerfully. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I want to contextualize the book of Romans very quickly this morning before we take a look at today's preaching text. There are 16 chapters in the book of Romans. We're in chapter 5. And so that's the second major section of the book. The first major section of the book is chapters 1 through 3. 
And in those chapters, you get the introduction, but then you get the wrath of God. That's the foundation of the gospel, that, that God is revealing his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. That goes on for almost two and a half chapters. Get to the end of chapter two, and we find that in that first section, there's also propitiation. That is, Jesus takes the wrath of God in our place. That's chapters one through three. Then chapters four and five is all about justification. These two chapters that we're in right now are all about how is it that we who sin are considered to be by God sinless? Justification. Then you have chapters six and seven. And, and justification is, is not the whole of the gospel. You see, sanctification is all about our, our being made new. We're new creations. There's something changed in our very nature. Our heart has been transformed. And that impacts the way we live our lives. So chapters 6 and 7 talk about the change in our nature and our growing up into maturity in Christ as new creatures. And then chapter 8, you have glorification, and that's the end of the gospel. That is the goal. When I say end, I don't say that's it. That, that's the goal. That's where we're going. Resurrection from the dead. Uh, a life practically and experientially without sin. Eternal life and glory. A new heavens and a new earth. A new environment, a new universe in which to live. Then chapters uh, 9 through 11, Paul doubles back and he says, I need to teach you about election. What's the role of Israel in all of this with all of the other nations? And how is it that some people are saved by this gospel and others are not? And then chapters 12 through 16 say, in light of the first 11 chapters, just meditate on that. Think about all that God has done in the gospel. All this doctrine, all this abstraction of, of reality and truth and promises and hope and all of those things. And now practically, how does that change the way we live our lives? So we got chapters 12 through 16 where Paul says, in light of this, so do that. And so the first 11 chapters, we call that orthodoxy, which means right doctrine or right belief. And then the last chapters, 12 through 16, that's orthopraxy, right practice or right living that's the book of romans and if you can just get that framework in your mind then you can become an expert in the book of romans and it doesn't need to intimidate you and then wherever you get to in the book you say okay well i'm in the in the part about justification so i need to understand what what this is about based on this idea of justification so that's where we are right now in chapter 5. And, and in the stretch of the book of Romans that we're through now, in chapter 4, uh, Paul has talked about what is justification. Justification is to be counted righteous, not by your works, but by your faith. That's how I would summarize chapter 4. If you know that, then you know basically everything in chapter 4. You don't know his argument, but you know what he's trying to prove. Then you get to chapter 5. That's where we are last week and this week. And in these first 11 verses, Paul just takes a break from explaining what justification is, and he says, I want you to know how awesome justification is. I want you to love it. I want you to be just over the moon ecstatic that you've been justified because along with this declaration that you are righteous, that is, this declaration by God that he considers you to be a person without sin, all of this gets thrown in. Because if you are, 
from God's point of view, without sin, all of this is also yours. You see how that works? So the fact that we have this sinless status necessitates that God also gives us these gifts, these treasures. And that's where we're at. So what are these treasures? Well, I'm not going to re-preach last week, but I'm going to just review last week because that really is important for this week. The first treasure of justification is verse 1. That's peace with God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, before we were considered righteous, before we were justified, we were at war with God. And if you're at war with God, you will lose. He will win. When you're at war with God, you, are, you die, you are condemned, and you go to hell. That's chapters 1 through 3. Those who are at war with God, their destination is hell. So how good it is that we are at peace with God, which means now our, our destination has changed. If you're at peace with God, your default destination is no longer hell, but it's now heaven. And not just heaven, but resurrection into eternal life. That is, your bodies come back to life and you live forever with God in a new heavens and a new earth. Peace with God. He's not angry. He'll never punish you. There's no wrath left for you. You're at peace. Second treasure of justification is access into grace. First part of verse 2. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access into grace. That is, the throne of judgment has now become the throne of grace. So we have access to God. Where before, and we went over this last week a lot, before, the closer you get to God, the more dangerous it is. Uh, sinners cannot get close to God. That's why they go to hell. The closer a sinner tries to get to God, the more likely it is that they're going to be struck down dead, first in their bodies and then forever. But now that you're justified and God says, well, I consider you to be without sin, you can get right up to the throne of God. And what we find out in the book of Revelation is that we will see his face. And what is one of the great Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's access to God. And if you can see God's face, because he dwells in inapproachable light, that is light that you can't approach because it's too bright. But now, if you, because of your status, you can walk into the unapproachable light and see God. And in other places, we're told, come up here on the throne and reign with Christ. Then he, he also, with that, gives us everything else. There's no greater prize in all of reality than to be invited up onto the throne of God. So if you have that kind of access, he also has given us everything else. It's not bad treasure. Third treasure is hope in the glory of God. Second part of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is tied in with, with the, the previous two treasures. The Bible says that one day God will come to judge. That's the great and terrible day of the Lord. And, and no one who is not justified or not righteous, can actually hope to see that glory because that glory is deadly to sinners. 
But now, because we've been justified, we hope for that glory. We can't wait for that day. That's the consummation of the age. That, that is when all things are made right. That's when God's justice falls and we are exempt from God's justice because our sins have already been punished. Justice has already been poured out against our sins. So we hope now for the day of justice. And we hope for the glory of God. We're no longer afraid of it. Because, and this is again, we're going to get to this in Romans 8, but with the glory of God comes our own glorification. It's chapter 8. We hope for it because we're going to be able to see it without fear, without destruction, and we will be caught up into that glory. Amazing. Peter says it this way, we are, we'll become partakers of the divine nature. Just get your head around that. We don't become God, but we become partakers of the divine nature. We're glorified. So we hope for it. It's a good treasure. Fourth treasure in verses 3 to 5 is rejoicing in suffering. Rejoicing in suffering. I'm going to develop that a little bit more, so let me just give you the fifth treasure, and then we'll get right into rejoicing and suffering. The fifth treasure is rejoicing in assurance, which is down in verse 11. What we're going to see is this rejoicing in suffering, which we looked at from verses 3 to 5, actually extends all the way to verse 10. So verses 6 through 10 are just helping us to understand how can we rejoice in suffering. So here are your five treasures. Peace with God, access into grace, hope in the glory of God, the ability to rejoice in suffering, and rejoicing in assurance. That is, having a sure and certain hope through these promises. Let's take a closer look at verses three to five to set us up for this morning. Verses three. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's what we looked at last week. We can hope in our suffering or sorry, we can rejoice in our suffering because God brings suffering into our lives to bring us to hope. Now what's the logic of this? We went over it last, last week a little bit, so let me just very quickly uh, set this foundation again. If you're suffering, oftentimes that suffering is not removed. And if the suffering is not removed, what God is saying to you, because He loves you and He's not punishing you, He is saying to you, beloved child, endure this suffering. Now why would God do that? God asks us to endure suffering in order to build in us character. Well, what kind of character is God trying to build into us? Well, see, this is what makes the difference between Christians and non-Christians. This is the treasure of justification. When you are enduring through suffering, the Christian, the justified person says, yes, I know that I am suffering here and now, but I've got a greater reality, which is sinless perfection before the throne of God. So all of a sudden, the suffering is contextualized within justification. And God does this in our lives. So if you're suffering and you're, you're enduring, take the next step. Contextualize that suffering within your justification. 
And by that, you say, okay, I am suffering physical uh, illness, perhaps chronic illness, perhaps terminal illness. You can either focus on the illness or you can focus on the promise of justification. Yes, it's true that my body is breaking down, but I am being renewed in my spirit because I know that I am uh, considered to be righteous and spotless and perfect. I know that on the great day of the Lord, my body will be raised from the dead in glory. So though I suffer now for a time, I know there's a greater reality to come. See, that contextualizes it. You might be struggling through uh, difficult marriage or strained family relationships. And you say, you know, this relationship is not what I want it to be. But I've been justified, so my relationship with God is perfect. So even though on the, on the horizontal, my relationships are strained or, or they're not fulfilling me the way I want them to or they're not, they're not pleasing me the way I want them to, I have everything I need in my vertical relationship with God. And if you have to choose vertical versus horizontal relationships, you choose the vertical. So you say, I will endure and I will, I will receive everything I need relationally from God so that I can pour myself out as a servant to my spouse, to my kids, to my friends, to my enemies, and so on and so forth. So that's the kind of character that justification begins to need into your life all of a sudden you see, wow, things aren't the way I want them to be now, but that's just now, and there's a greater reality to come. So prosperity gospel preaching, the problem with it is not that we don't believe in a prosperity gospel, it's the timing. We are not living our best life now. The best is yet to come. That's the kind of character that suffering and enduring and suffering is supposed to produce in us and when that character is formed so if you're enduring and suffering begin to contextualize that suffering because when you begin to contextualize your endurance through suffering all of a sudden supernaturally hope begins to issue forth from your heart and you begin to look to the eschatological horizon what do I mean by that you begin to look to the return of Christ as your greatest treasure. Your greatest treasure is not whether or not the Toronto Raptors win the NBA Finals. Your greatest treasure is the return of Christ. And it sounds trite, but here's the reality. For so many, even Christians, it's more important to them how this seven games of basketball goes than the fact that we've been redeemed, justified, and Christ is coming back. And what God wants to do is he wants to wake us up from that sleepiness so that we can prize what he prizes. He wants to form that character in us because it's only in that character that we truly get to enjoy the hope of the gospel. Hope. What does this mean? As I've said, hope is not, I hope it's true, but when you endure through suffering and you contextualize it within the promise of justification, all of a sudden, your hope becomes assurance. I know it's true. It's supernatural. What is the proof that our hope in these things is not just, I hope it's true, but it's an assurance that it's true? That's what verses 
5 through 10 are all about. In verse 5, we get the subjective proof. That is, you just can feel that it's true. You just know that it's true. You, know, you can't prove it scientifically or logically. It's just a, an existential reality that you just, you're certain internally. You have the sense that it's true. That's what verse 5 is. And then the objective proof is in verse 6. Paul says, I don't want you to hang your life on some subjective hope, some subjective proof. That's good. But what we also have is objective truth. Logically, this is an ironclad promise of God. And that's in verse 6. And then verses 7 through 10 just sort of unpack verse 6. What do you mean by by verse 6? That's verses 7 through 10. Let's take a look at that right now. Subjective proof, verse 5. So we're talking about hope, right? God will ask us to endure through suffering so that he can produce character in us because he wants us to enjoy the gospel. He wants us to enjoy Jesus Christ. And that enjoyment, that delight comes in hope. And verse 5 says, and this hope does not put us to shame. In other words, this is not a I hope it's true. This is an absolute certainty. How do you know, Paul, that this hope will not put us to shame? How do we know that we will not be disappointed in this hope? How do we know that the things we hope for will come to pass? Well, that's the end of verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Subjective. You can feel the love of God in your heart. You, you, you can just feel a communion with God. Do you know that when you feel close to God, anyone ever had that experience? I just feel close from, to God. Sure you have. And there's other times you feel far away from God. But that, that feeling close to God is the proof that your hope is not in vain, that, that it's actually going to amount to glorification. And when you feel close to God, do you know who it is that you feel close to? I mean, yes, you feel f- close to the Father and the Son, but it's because of the Holy Spirit that's been poured out into your heart. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It, and the Holy Spirit is the person of God that we are in contact with. Jesus is not in our hearts. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And the Father dwells in unapproachable light. But the Holy Spirit has been poured out from heaven, from God. Jesus has sent him to us, not just to blow around us, but to fill our hearts and to communicate to us subjectively, internally, the love of God. And so we know this is true. On one level then, you don't have to prove anything. You just know that it's true. You know that your hope is certain. But Paul goes on, he says, I don't want you to just have the subjective hope. Not that that wouldn't be enough. It it would be. But he goes on. He says, I want to give you objective hope. I want you to know for sure that that this is logical. You you ever hear people say, well, you just have blind faith? Rubbish. Christianity is not about blind faith. It's about logical, coherent, well-evidenced faith. And so verse 6 says you can have certainty in the hope of the gospel that God produces through suffering and enduring in suffering and the character that comes about by suffering. You can have objective certainty that that hope is real. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the objective proof. 
While we were still weak, what does it mean to be weak? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in money? What if, you, what if your, your net worth was zero and you didn't have a nickel in your pocket? Then you're poor. So to be poor is to come with nothing in your pockets and to be worth nothing and for somebody to say, let me buy you lunch. You have nothing to offer. It, that lunch is given to you as a gift. It, it, it's totally given to you as a gift. So to be poor in spirit is to come before God and to say, I have nothing to offer for my salvation. I've got nothing. I would give you a nickel, but I don't even have a nickel of spiritual merit to spend on my own justification. And what Paul says is this is objective truth that something's going on here. That at the right time, while we were still weak, that is, while we were poor in spirit, when we had nothing to offer, we were dead. To mix my metaphors in trespasses and sin. That is the moment when Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't wait till we had a, a nickel of merit before he came and said, oh, I guess that's enough. I'll, I'll top you up. He, he didn't wait until you know, we had sort of, we weren't flatlined anymore. There was just like a little flicker of life. Okay, well, let me just boost that life a little bit. We were dead. We were weak. Poor, we had nothing to give. And that's the moment when God says, okay, let's rescue them. Let's go. Sent forth his son, and he did it all while we were undeserving. We can have assurance because of the objective truth that Christ died to save sinners. That's what the Bible says. That's what he did. And how do we know that Christ died to save sinners? Because that's what he said that he was going to do, and then he was raised from the dead. His resurrection from the dead is proof positive that what he said he was going to accomplish by dying actually was accomplished. That's objective proof that we will not be disappointed in the end. So as I said, the rest of Romans 5, 7-10 develops verse 6. So that gives us the thesis statement. Now let's take a look at verses 7-10 through because Paul's going to develop this thought a little bit more. And he starts in verse 7 by saying, it's not normal for a person to sacrifice himself even for a righteous person. He says it's just not in human nature to do. Take a look at verse 7. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Then he qualifies it. Though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. That's important because if he had just said one will not die for a righteous person, I could give you all kinds of uh, examples of people who died, gave up their lives for other people. You have soldiers who die for their country. You have husbands who die for their wives. You have parents who would die for their children. So, so it's not true to say that no one would ever do this, but he says it's not normative. It's not normative for human beings to step forward and just willy-nilly say, I'll die for that person. I'll die for that stranger. And it's even more unthinkable for a person to die for their mortal enemy. 
When two nations go to war, you don't have the armies setting up against each other and then all of the soldiers on side A saying, you know what, I think we should just die so that they can win. It's not normal. We don't instinctively die for anyone else. We have to have a deep sense of duty, as in the soldier or a bodyguard for, for the President of the United States or whomever, a deep sense of duty or because of some uh, abnormal love. And there are those normative relationships of abnormal love. Spouses, parents for children, and so on. But he says, when it comes down to dying for just anyone, that's not the normal human experience. And we will not sacrifice ourselves for our enemies, not in our fallen condition. That just doesn't happen. It's always a supernatural act when a human being will die for his or her enemy. It's proof of the agape love of God at work in a person. It's what happens. But all of that, you know, kind of sacrificial love is grounded in the ultimate act of sacrificial love. We love God and we love others because he first loved us. Uh, the universe would not operate on any kind of sacrificial love if God himself had not initiated sacrificial love as the central reality of the universe at the cross. It's ground zero for sacrificial love. And that's verse 8. God proves his love to us by sending Christ to die for sinners, for enemies, for rebels, for people who deserve condemnation, for people who ought to have gone to hell. Christ was sent into the world to die for those kinds of people, which totally deflates and deconstructs any kind of meritocracy when it comes to the gospel. There's none of us that can say we even contributed a nickel I would have used a penny, but it's not legal currency anymore. <laughs> we can't even contribute a nickel of spiritual merit to this. We're absolutely opposed to God when God does this profound and amazing act of love. Take a look at verse 8. So it's not normal for, for someone to die for another person, though occasionally it happens. Verse 8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not die for righteous people. Christ died for us when we were full of sin. Christ died for us when we were His enemies. Christ died for us when we hated Him with a vitriolic hatred. Not just an indifference, but we hated Him. We would have killed Him ourselves had we the opportunity before we were saved. Christ died for us when we were not attractive to Him in any way. There's nothing. When God looked down on Abraham or David or you or me, there's nothing in us before He redeemed us that was attractive to Him in any way. We were repulsive to Him. As was Abraham, as was David. 
as was everyone. So how do you know God loves you? Because Christ died for you when you were unlovable. Any lovability that you have in you right now, anything in you that makes God drawn to you or that makes God love you is not native to you. It was given to you after He had died for you when you were unlovable, when, when you were not appealing to Him in any way. He just looked at you and saw an awful mess. He was angry with you. He hated you. Except that He loved you. It's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's paradoxical with Jacob He loved and Esau He hated. But what we have to understand is when Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We were not lovable to Him. This has huge implications for our relationships with one another, doesn't it? If God does that for us, then how ought we to love one another? Do we wait for our, our, our spouse, our husband, or our wife to be lovable? Or do we love our husband or our wife even in their most unlovable moments? Our children are not always going to be uh, everything that we want them to be. Does that mean that our, our love is conditional based upon performance and character? No. And that is just that even unsaved people can love with glimmers of unconditionality. But that's a glimmer of the Imago Dei that's still preserved in sinners, the image of God. To love the unlovable. When God showed His love for us through the death of Christ, we were justified. And then, then, when Jesus says, it is finished, and, and we're all hanging with Him there on the tree, it's at that moment that God declared that we were now lovable. He purchased our lovability. That's justification. And it's at that moment when Jesus is finished and he, he breathed His last that we were then from that moment forward without sin. Now that's applied to us in space and time at another point, but from God's point of view, it all happened on the cross. When was Abraham lovable? When Jesus breathed His last. When was David lovable? When Jesus breathed His last. When were you and I lovable? When Jesus breathed His last. It's justification. And it's because at that moment that we were from that moment forward in space-time without sin. It's at that moment that we were no longer enemies with God. It's at that moment that we were loved as children. It's at that moment that we started to love Him because He had loved us first. It's at that moment that we became His treasured possession. So I know, you've you got to sort of play with the space-time continuum. It all happened at that one moment from Adam all the way to the thief who hung beside him, all of those people were unlovable until Jesus died. And so, God loved many people before that moment, but it's because He loved them in that moment and applied that moment backward. Same with us. 
that was in our past. So did He just love us? No. That, that love of that moment when Jesus breathed His last was applied to our lives at the moment that we were called and then effectively justified in space-time. All of this foreknown by God before He said, let there be light. Brought about by God. It's amazing. But it's all because of the justifying work of Jesus on the cross. If this is true, then we can be assured that what we have been forever rescued from will last forever, and that is the wrath of God. If, if at that moment we were made right with God, then we never need to fear the wrath of God. You see, this is the argument for the objective hope that we have. The, it's the objective proof. Take a look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. That's what we've been talking about. We've been made lovable. We've been made or declared to be righteous. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Paul's saying, this hope is certain. You can't lose what was gained when Jesus breathed His last. Paul develops a profound argument from the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, if Jesus did all of this by dying, justification, how much more can he do now that he's alive? As, as Reformed Christians, we often don't think about what part does the resurrection play in our justification? We, we take it all to the cross. But Paul's making a powerful point that, that the resurrection actually furthers the work of Christ in justification. This is the thinking. We're going to take a look at it. Verse 10. He says, if we were reconciled at the moment of death. And, he, and Jesus could accomplish that by death. If we were made lovable, if we were transformed from enemies into children at the moment of death, on the third day after Jesus came back to life, and now He's alive, and we're told that He has ascended into heaven, He sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. If He accomplished that by dying, what can he do now that he's alive and at the right hand of God? Do you think we could fall away? Do you think that, that what he secured by his death he could lose now that he's alive? And this is all about the objective proof that the hope that we have that is brought and crystallized through suffering is certain. Jesus lives to make intercession for us. And if Jesus can purchase us for God by death, He will keep us purchased by living. God transforms us from sinful enemies who hate Him and have nothing to attract Him to us into holy children who love Him and are His treasured possession by the justifying death of Christ. Now that we are holy children who love Him, now that we are His treasured possession, and now that Jesus is alive to intercede for us as our great high priest at the right hand of God, 
we certainly can be certain that our justification is eternally secure. He justifies us by dying and He keeps us justified by living. It's amazing. So remember, this is all about the objective argument, the objective proof for why the hope we receive through suffering is assured. Suffering, if you have to endure, eventually take that step. Contextualize your suffering in light of all that is yours in the gospel. When you contextualize your suffering in the here and now against the eternal backdrop of eternal glory being made right with Christ, you'll produce, that will be a, a maturing character that grows in you. And as that character matures, hope will be your treasured possession. How do you know that that hope is real? It's not going to let you down. Christ died for the ungodly. It's not normal to die for a righteous person, but Christ died to justify sinners. Justified sinners are saved from the wrath of God, and Jesus justified us by dying. He keeps us justified by living. That's the objective proof. Logically coherent, ironclad argument from God to us. This is certain. Therefore, since we are justified, we can rejoice in our sufferings. It's a treasure of justification. Don't waste the difficult aspects of your life. Use the suffering in your life to lead you to hope because it's in hope that you actually enjoy God. It's in hope that you delight in the gospel. It's counterintuitive, but suffering will bring you great joy. The last treasure of justification, we can say really quickly, is verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation and so this kind of flows out of our fourth treasure it's this treasure of assurance what God has given you he is secured by his death and resurrection therefore it cannot be taken away rejoice in that you can't even undo what God has done for you You cannot undo what God has done for you. Justification then puts us on unshakable ground and gives us assurance in our salvation. So the application is, is simply to enjoy these treasures, but also an exhortation not to waste your suffering. If you're not suffering now, you will suffer sometime before the end whether it's through health loss, grief, strained relationships, uh, breakdown in financial well-being, loss of a job, whatever it is. Contextualize that suffering in light of the, the gospel and find joy in Christ. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you for these treasures of justification, and I pray that you would apply them to our hearts so that uh, the gospel would be more than something that we mentally assent to or a formula for, for um, salvation that is abstract and not practical. God, I, I pray that you would help all of us to delight in the hope that is certain in Christ. And I know you're going to use suffering to bring that hope into our lives. So rather than praying that you would remove all the suffering from our lives, I pray, give us endurance. And as we endure in suffering, produce godly character in us. And Lord, I know that when that godly character is produced, we will possess hope. And hope will not disappoint us because we will feel your love poured out into our hearts through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And because we will be reminded of the logical coherence of the gospel that has saved us. Oh God, you are wonderful, marvelous, beautiful. Help us to treasure you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.